0: Good evening, friends. Welcome to uh, Church by the Bridge, our School of Theology open night. Uh, Just so you know who I am, I'm Simon. I'm one of the pastors here at Church by the Bridge. Uh, If you're with us here as a visitor, if this is your first time to Church by the Bridge, uh, a really warm welcome to you. We're excited that you're here. Uh, If you're a regular here at Church by the Bridge across one of our six congregations, I'm also excited that you're here tonight. Uh, To hear about our subject tonight, which is this on the screen, the gospel and the Reproductive Revolution. Uh, We're here tonight. Uh, You might be a Christian and you are here because you know that you're saved by the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, that he's laid down his life for you uh, by his death and his victorious resurrection from the dead. You are alive in him. You have a great hope. Uh, You might be here tonight Um, As a sceptic, you might be here tonight as a not yet Christian, uh, but you're here to explore and and get an understanding of what Christians believe about life, uh, and in particular, uh, the beginning of life and creation of life. Um, I'm excited that you're here, if that's you. Um, Please speak to me, uh, please speak to our guest speaker, Robert, uh, after if you have more inquiries about the Christian faith. Um, I'm excited that you're here tonight. Um, A couple of housekeeping things just to begin. Uh, you might have noticed as you walked in, there's a whole lot of scaffolding around our regular church building over here. That's because we're kind of refitting the church building. As a result of that, um, that's not the big issue. The big issue is the male toilet is out of action. Uh, therefore, as a result, men and women are sharing the women's toilet alone. Um, it's a scary proposition for either sex, I'm sure. Um, uh, if you can, if you, you, know, anyway, you can negotiate that. I don't need to tell you how to work that out. Um, maybe just holler if you're going in there. Yeah, that's good. Um, Friends, we're here uh, tonight um, to honour God and to glorify Him as we sit under His teaching. Um, I want to especially welcome you. This is our second School of Theology uh, for 2012, our second School of Theology Open Night for 2012. Um, Last time we looked at trusting the Gospels. Can we trust the Gospels? Tonight we look at this excellent topic. Um, It's a God-given desire Uh, It's a God-given desire to create and to love a child. We were made this way, uh, to have this desire. As Christians, we recognise that the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is the author and the giver of life. Yet sometimes having a child isn't all that straightforward. Sometimes it's problematic and difficult. In 2012, there is a range of options available to us to help make our desire a reality to have kids Uh, IVF, stem cells, uh, donor eggs, surrogacy, a whole range of options. How do we make the assessment? How do we make the right call on what is good as Christians, what is right under God? Uh, What sort of contraception, if any, should we use? Uh, When does human life begin? What are the arguments for and against abortion? Is it okay to use genetic screening, prenatal tests to check for abnormalities in unborn babies? Should Christians use IVF or other assisted reproductive technologies? What's the current state of embryonic cell research and how does that impinge on our understanding of God and his gospel? Um, I think there's a couple of questions that kind of help us or maybe handicap us actually as to understanding how these things work out. Um, I think one of the two of the big issues why we can't make these decisions are A, we don't have accurate, up to date information about the medical and technological issues involved. And secondly, maybe we haven't thought through sound, biblical, gospel centered frameworks for making ethical decisions in these areas in light of at least that's, they're my handicaps, they might be your handicaps as well, um, not really being up to date and not really having the framework to think through these things, um, I'm really delighted to have our guest speaker here tonight to help us kind of navigate perhaps some of those areas. Um, our guest speaker tonight is uh, Professor Robert Norman. Uh, Robert has flown from Adelaide to be here with us this, after- to this evening. Um, I picked him up from the airport this afternoon and he gets in the car and I said, oh, how things been going? And he goes, I'm a bit tired. And, and I'm thinking, I, said, I said, well, why is that? And he goes, "So oh, I've just flown in from Japan yesterday. Um, Robert's on his way to Beijing pretty soon. Um, we are blessed to have a man of his calibre with us this evening, um, a man who is a leader in his field. He's an expert um, in his field of gynecology, obstetrics, and in particular, clinical research um, and thinking in the area of IVF and reproductive technology. And we are privileged to have a man like this amongst us tonight. Um, Let me just give you a bit of background on uh, Professor Robert Norman. He was born in the UK uh, but grew up in Africa. Uh, He obtained a medical degree from the University of Birmingham and then specialised in obstetrics and gynaecology and hormonal aspects of pathology. Maybe he can explain that to us later. Uh, He worked in Harare, now in Zimbabwe for several years. Uh, He worked in Durban, London and now works mainly out of Adelaide in South Australia. Um, He is a world leading clinician and researcher in the area of human fertility. Uh, He's the co-founder of Fertility South Australia or Fertility SA. Uh, He's a married man. Uh, He has three children. Um, As far as I can tell on his website which is on your sheet, uh, he's interested in sport, uh, current affairs uh, fishing, and the Christian faith, um, whether those things are all still regular and current. Um, but certainly he is still interested in the Christian faith. Uh, the one great thing um, I'm sure Robert would testify, he, he knows that he's a sinner and that he's saved by grace. And he worships God uh, at Holy Trinity in Adelaide in one of their evening services. Um, and he, it's just a blessing to have such a world leader such a humble man, uh, such a gifted man amongst us tonight, uh, to look at this subject, the gospel and and the reproductive revolution. (coughs) We're Christians uh, here at Church by the Bridge, and so we pray and we ask God that he would oversee our time together. So please bow your heads with me as we pray, um, committing our time together to the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank and praise you for the gospel. We thank you that you came down from heaven, gave up glory, Father, and became man. Father, we thank you for Jesus. Father, thank you that he lived, he died, and he was alive today. He rose from the dead. Father, may that impact all of our lives tonight. Uh, may it shape the way we think about this most important issue of the beginning of life, and in particular, reproductive technology. We pray with thanks that Robert can be amongst us this evening. And Father, we pray that this night would be a night where you are glorified and honoured. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Robert's going to come and speak to us. Just so you know, Robert will address us for approximately half an hour. Uh, We'll have a short break. You can gather your thoughts. um, And then you can hit him hard with your questions uh, for a period of time. And then we'll have some supper available um, out the back uh, later on tonight. Please welcome uh, Professor Robert Norman.
1: Thanks, everyone I feel very honored that so many of you come tonight and I think it's because it's a topic that impacts all of us whether we're concerned about it individually or whether it's friends of ours or whether we are appalled by what we see in society I think one of the greatest gifts that nature has given us is the power of fertility the fact that we can reproduce that we can have children and that we can enjoy um, our kids and our grandchildren All of us have the choice of exercising that fertility, and some of us choose not to. Some of us decide we're never going to have kids, either because in the relationship we're in, we've chosen not to, or we never reach a relationship where we feel that we are going to have children. But for those of you who decide that you want to exercise this wonderful gift of fertility that um, God has given us, there are going to be a substantial proportion of you that are going to be disappointed. The statistics say that about one in six couples in Australia have significant problems with fertility. That doesn't mean one in six people don't have babies, but it means that a large proportion of society have major problems in having kids. And the Bible has a lot to say about birth and death. Um, I've just been thinking a lot about Ecclesiastes recently. And in Ecclesiastes 3, we have these verses that says, To everything there's a season, a time for every purpose under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die. And all the way through the Bible, we encounter episodes of birth and of death. And the Bible says a lot about birth. And also says quite a lot about infertility. There are a lot of very famous characters in the Bible who had great difficulty in becoming uh, parents. So my life has been moulded by a number of things. First of all, I am a scientist. I'm a person who believes passionately in science. I'm also a practising clinician, and I spend a large amount of my week talking to people about clinical aspects. And I am very firmly a convicted evangelical Christian who became uh, convinced of the truth of the gospel when I was 14 and have sought to practice all the elements of my life in harmony together. So, first of all, science. I believe very strongly in the scientific method. I'm not a person who's skeptical about science, I don't believe that scientists are evil people even though the vast majority of them are agnostic or atheist. I have 400 people in an institute that I run uh, dealing with reproduction either in animals or in test tubes or in humans and we use logical ways of working out how to solve problems and there is no doubt that science has made enormous uh, progress in reproduction. We know so much about reproduction now the genes that are involved we've learnt so much for instance from sheep and the way that they reproduce as to what goes on in the human egg and so you can never take me away from being a scientist but at the same time I know the limitations of science I know that 50% of what we believe today in 10 years time we're not going to believe because we have hypotheses, we test them We recheck them, and constantly things that used to be absolutely true are no longer true. And so there's this questioning and thinking and working out things and trial and error. And so I believe in science, but I know the deficiencies of science. I also serve on the National Health and Medical Research Council Research Committee, And this is the body that hands out $800 million worth of research every year. So in two weeks' time, we'll sit around a table, 10 of us, and we'll hand out $800 million of taxpayer money for research in lots of different areas. And we've learned how to work out those things that are going to work and those that don't. And we recognize that at least half the money that we're going to hand out in two weeks' time is going to produce results, which in 10 years' time mean nothing but that's the way that science operates. So I'm going to talk to you tonight as somebody who's convinced as a scientist, who doesn't believe that scientists are evil, that we are destroying society through science. I'm also a medical specialist, and I spend a lot of my time with people who are in agony, either physically or mentally or emotionally. Most of the people I deal with are totally healthy people whose only problem is that they can't have a child or they've got some reproductive hormone problem. In Africa, if you are infertile as a woman, you are condemned to the absolute trash heap of life because it doesn't matter if your husband's got no sperm, you are the one responsible for not being pregnant. And it is devastating to be an African woman who has no children. In our Western society, we're a bit different. Uh, Many of you are in total control of your lives. You've chosen your education. You may have got a tertiary degree. You may have a fantastic job. You may feel that you're earning enough money. You are blessed with the person that you want to have a child with. And then it doesn't happen. And for the first time in your life, the independent, totally in control person now doesn't know what to do and you go and see somebody who tells you this is what you've got to do and you end up in this whole medical system which tends to tell you what to do and you've got to follow formula and this great uh, medical breakthroughs that we've got will solve your problem. I'm totally convinced about the value of modern medicine but again I can see all the things that are wrong in modern medicine. I can see the sort of paternalistic way in which doctors work, uh, the way in which doctors act as technicians that give you a formula that you've got to follow. When I worked in Africa, I worked in a hospital that had this magnificent statue at the beginning at the front entrance, and it was an African carving of a man in agony. He was holding his stomach. He looked so sick. When you work to the back of the statue, there was this hideous serpent animal on his back. And I learned through working in Africa that for an African, when a Western doctor says, you've got a gastric ulcer or you've got a stomach cancer or something like that, that is not a solution to his problem. His solution is, what is this animal that's on my back? What is the reason why I am sick? And so... Most of many of our patients in Africa would get a diagnosis and then go off and see a witch doctor who would give them the sort of therapy that they were wanting, which was an explanation as to why they were sick. So in Western medicine, we're very good at saying why, but sorry, we're very good at saying uh, what has gone wrong, but we're very very bad at giving an explanation as to why things have happened to us, and being a convinced scientist and medical person, I can see Christianity coexisting beautifully when I look at science and medicine I can work out how things are happening even though I'm going to change my view as things go on, but no one can tell me why and that's where my faith tells me where I've come from, why I'm here where I'm headed so amidst modern medicine and modern science where the vast majority of people that you encounter either agnostic or atheist and have no room for God in their explanation of life how can I as a Christian be a major leader and deal day to day with matters of life uh, bringing kids into the world helping infertile couples have children how do I make decisions about embryos embryos that are stored in liquid nitrogen Embryos that people want to biopsy to find out if they've got a genetic disease. Um, How do I deal with people who want to advertise to get an egg donor or want to bring sperm in from America because they don't have any sperm of their own? How do I deal with a couple who are intent on going off to India to get a a surrogate woman who's going to be paid $5,000, which is a huge amount of money for her, to carry their embryos? I've got a Catholic friend who will hardly speak to me now. We've been good friends all my life, but every time I see her, her first words are, are you still practising that evil IVF? Um, She is absolutely convinced that I'm in the wrong area of life and that I have betrayed my faith by being in the whole area of reproductive medicine. So how can I get any specific guidance from Scripture as to whether I'm on the right track or not? How can you decide if a friend or you need to get some treatment for infertility? We need to remember that the Bible was written in a very pre-scientific era where largely uneducated rural farmers and hunter-gatherers had no real change in knowledge year by year and for whom all questions were answered by a supernatural explanation. There was very little testing and doing and working out a scientific theory. Everything was looked at in a spiritual form. Most knowledge was thought to be revealed and not uh, discoverable. And elements of nature were seen as God's way of uh, punishing or rewarding behavior. And infertility was very much part of that. Uh, there were people who were cursed by barrenness and were told were never to have children. Um, we see this still in many developing countries in the world today, and as I alluded to, if you're infertile in India or Africa, it's a terrible condemnation of you. We know how important children were in the Bible, and we're often told that this person was very wealthy because they had amazing number of kids, or they had all this cattle and sheep, etc. If you look at the devastating losses that Job went through of his children and all his possessions, particularly his animals, that was absolutely devastating because you can't get new children and you can't get new animals very easily. We've got records in the Bible of God's... dealing with people who were able to get pregnant well after menopause. So for instance, Abraham's wife. We've got people conceived without human sperm. But we also read of the sin of wasting your sperm. And we're also told that religious backsliding was very equivalent to adultery and to prostitution and the destruction that both bring in society. Many of the uh, stories about our poor spiritual behaviour in the Bible are often put back to sexual and conception problems. So Christian communities have always desired children, and some communities are completely against contraception and continue to use um, nature without any uh, limitation on becoming pregnant. Uh, In some churches, it's still thought to be evil to have sex unless you're trying to produce a child. And I see Catholics every day who say the church is totally against what I'm doing, but I I do need to come and see you to have a child. Um, I've got many colleagues, many people who see freezing embryos as a total. Uh, curse on, on a living human being how can you take a human being and stick them in liquid nitrogen for 10 or more years and then when the couple don't want them destroy them so uh, there are many couples that I see Christian couples who are very confused about what to do in relation to their faith and um, what to do once they're pregnant when they're confronted with issues like do you want to test your your fetus your embryo to see whether they carry a genetic disease. I'm also convinced, particularly in the churches that I've been involved in, that we handle infertility and matters of reproduction and contraception incredibly badly. Um, I'm not sure whether you have marriage preparations in this church, but I wonder in the marriage preparation course, does it cover what you do about not getting pregnant, or having multiple miscarriages, or? many of the other modern reproductive issues that we face. So up until maybe 50 years ago, it wasn't important. But with the introduction of the contraceptive pill, we've gone through a massive reproductive revolution. So for for the first time from 1960 onwards, women were able to control their reproduction uh, apart from a male. Up until that time, almost all contraception had been either not having sex or withdrawing from intercourse before the sperm went into the vagina. But from 1960s onwards, women were empowered to choose contraceptive methods that they were in in control of. Um, We, about 40 years ago, introduced donor sperm, and it was able to be safe and to be used. Um, More than 30 years ago, IVF was... Um, successful and over 4% of children in Australia now are IVF kids we live in an era where not only do we have a reproductive revolution but we've got a genetic revolution we've got an information technology one and a consumer revolution and this is what hits you every day we can control so much about reproduction we're consumers and therefore we're going to choose what we want Uh, We can get the information from the internet, and we can find a clinic in Kazakhstan that will offer us whatever we want. And we have a vast amount of knowledge that's available to us now. We can conceive all sorts of beautiful combinations. So, for instance, did you know that you could have three mothers? You could have a genetic mother who gives the egg. Um, You could have a biological mother who carries you as an embryo in her womb and you can have a social mother who takes you over when you're born and that's not uncommon Uh, that's what surrogacy is often about Um, increasingly women can conceive without a male partner and we find many single people who uh, have decided that they're not going to um, have a uh, have a male in their life or people who are lesbians uh, can choose a sperm donor and produce a child without any involvement of a male, other than using their biological material. Um, men can conceive a child. Elton John's a good example. He and his partner got a surrogate in the United States, and they've had a child using one of them, sperm, or I don't know if they mixed all the sperm up or what they did. Um, women can conceive post-menopause. The oldest woman ever to have a baby was 68 psychiatrist from Romania and she just said I want this I'm going to pay for it and I'll get it and someone provided it for her so in the post-Christian age choice is paramount we live in a consumer society where if I want something I'll go to David Jones I'll tell them I want that and I'll pay for it or I could go somewhere and I can negotiate something or I can buy it on the internet And all of us are infused with consumerism, whether we're Christians or not. We believe that we're entitled, if we can pay for it, to buy it and to get it. And increasingly we're seeing that in reproduction. Um, If people think they can pay for it and there's a clinic that will provide it, what right does a doctor or society or an ethics committee have to tell me what to do? Along with this, many government policies in Australia have made IVF and fertility treatment widely available, uh, funded by Medicare, and relatively inexpensive. So in Adelaide, you can have an IVF cycle uh, under Medicare for maybe $2,500. In Sydney, it's a bit more expensive. Um, I was with a woman the other day who had decided to have a surrogacy arrangement in the United States, and she'd paid $120,000, but she'd got what she wanted. Um, I know, particularly in Sydney, that infertility services are advertised all around the place, on the radio, the TV, uh, buses, cinemas, full-page adverts for one clinic in, in Sydney, and increasingly people see this as being the norm. And many people just go straight for IVF when they think they're not pregnant without realising are other things. So a lot of the reproductive revolution that you and I face now is a product of scientific reductionism. And it's where the mysteries of the universe, the wonder of creation, has been reduced to single genes and to the workings of molecules. So the pain of a child with cystic fibrosis, for instance that a family goes through as they see this child suffering with lung disease and needing enormously expensive uh, treatment is seen by a scientist and a physician often as just a problem in a single part of a gene, the cystic fibrosis gene, where there's been a single uh, base change in the DNA. And therefore you can say, that child, that family are like that because this one part of the gene is abnormal and it was just bad luck that two people who fell in love had the same bad gene and that came together. So one of the prime advocates of the fact that we can reduce everything back to genetics is Richard Dawkins. And apparently he was he asked a child once, uh, what do you think flowers are for? And she said, I think flowers are for two things. One is to make the world pretty and the other is to help bees make honey for us." That's what I would have said. But Dawkins told her she was completely wrong. He said, we're all machines built by DNA whose purpose is to make more copies of that same DNA. Flowers are for the same purpose as everything in the living kingdom for spreading copy programs about that DNA. That's exactly what we're for. We're machines for propagating DNA every living object's sole reason for living. And so if you reduce science down to genes and to molecules and to pathways, that's what you get to, is that um, we're basically just a product of uh, things that we have no control over. And so our genetic DNA is the reason for our emotional pain, for our depression, for us not getting pregnant. And uh, scientists will often concentrate on what's wrong with your DNA, what's wrong with your uterus or your sperm, rather than what's wrong with your heart. This fits in with you as an emotional person and a spiritual person. I don't see it that way. I I totally believe in the power of genes and what's happened to genes, and I do believe that a lot of what um, we understand about genes can be explained through evolutionary processes, although that's a very controversial statement. But we're more than DNA. We're created in the image of God to have a relationship with him, and as such we've all got dignity and equality in in his sight. Our purpose is to serve him and our fellow men, not to serve a primal imperative of our ancient DNA. And I think as Christians we should look in wonder at our human bodies even though we may have a genetic problem, Um, even though we may be disabled. And I have a wife who's severely disabled but has an incredible spiritual insight that she would never have got if it wasn't for her disability. Um, But when we deal with other people who are not Christians they're often enormously blasé about life. Um, It's a matter of hit and miss. It's a matter of bad luck. It's a matter almost of fatalism, that this is just something that's happened to you, whereas we believe that we've been created in God's image, and even in our imperfections, that's what we are. And we also know that in God's sight, all life is sacrosanct and deserves protection, even if for uh, the rest of the world it looks like being completely useless. So how does a Christian respond when they or a friend suffer from infertility. Um, do we respond to just what the Church tells us to believe? And for many Catholics, they're told, that's it. You can't access any reproductive technology. Uh, you can never go through IVF. And I might tell you that 99% of Catholics completely ignore that guidance. The Bible is actually quite silent on how to respond. and. Um, I think that we don't handle this very well in the Christian church. And I particularly think those of you who are fertile are very bad at dealing with people who are infertile. And that's largely because people who are infertile in Christian groups don't declare it. They're in a relationship, and because they're not having kids, everyone assumes that that's their choice. But I have seen people enormously injured by statements from the pulpit, from statements from friends, etc. So as I said, one in six couples in a church are going to have troubles conceiving. And I've known a couple in my church who've gone through enormous troubles with infertility. They were senior leaders in the church. And one of the ministers actually saying from the congregation to them, well, you know, in front of the whole congregation, well, I hope we'll have the patter of tiny feet soon. And that was the most agonizing thing that you could say. I still struggle, and you may disagree with me in this, that when a couple in the congregation have a child and we make an announcement about it and our church around claps and says fantastic and everything, I, I know there are other people in the congregation for whom that's another nail that's being driven in. And we need to look very carefully at how do we announce the fact that people are having kids in a way that doesn't cause great trouble for people who are not having kids. Um, Mother's Day, everyone, all the women who come into church are given flowers if they're a mother. What about the people who are not mothers? What about the people who have chosen not to have children because they haven't been able to find the right Christian person to get married to? I, I really do think that we need to reconsider the way that we deal with the joy of people having kids and uh, the joy of being mothers and parents uh, when there are a lot of people around who are having trouble and won't declare it and are too scared to do so because we kind of think that all good Christians should be having kids. There are a couple of other things. I think, um, and particularly as I look at the age of you guys here tonight, um, there's another phenomenon that's happening, and that is that lifestyles aggravate infertility. Um, I make it a practice of asking people, not straight out, but on a bit of paper, a questionnaire that I give, how often do you have intercourse each month? And I'm amazed at some people. You know, it's once a month or once every two months. And these are people in their 20s and 30s. And the reason they're not having intercourse is that they're working until 10 o'clock at night, that they hardly ever see each other because of their lifestyles. They're great Christians, they love each other, but they're working in a way that they hardly ever see each other, and by the time that they have opportunity to have intercourse, they're so exhausted that it's the last thing that they want to do. There are a lot of people who don't even bother to work out when they're likely to be ovulating or their partner is likely to be ovulating. Men are particularly bad in thinking that they would be fertile forever. Just because there are guys in the paper who have kids when they're 80 or 90, there's this belief that men are fertile forever. It's not true. Men's fertility goes down almost as rapidly as female fertility does. And there's a paper in the famous journal Nature in the last two weeks that shows the rate of mutations in sperm from men goes up dramatically as they age whereas the rate of mutations in the woman's egg does not so there is the phenomenon of a very dangerous male who thinks that he can wait forever to have kids Um, women's fertility drops off quite dramatically or starts to drop from 30 but very dramatically from 38 and yet we've got to wait for us to pay off the mortgage or we need two salaries to do this or whatever Um, I think modern uh, Christians and modern non-Christians don't realize that by waiting until it's they're later in their 30s or by waiting until they paid off the house or they've done this or they've traveled or whatever, that the safety net is just getting smaller and smaller and smaller. In the past, people used to start trying to have kids when they were 18 and just got married. Now the average age of people starting to try and have kids is well into their 30s. So uh, a lot of us are under or overweight. A lot of us are consuming vast amounts of caffeine. Um, We're often travelling away from home. So I've got some people who, in a marriage, they're actually only together once a month. Sorry, once um, every couple of months. So... Something we as Christians could be doing is looking at our lifestyles, and I think this is a whole godly issue as well in terms of our commitment. And then we also need to look at getting assistance from a general practitioner, a specialist, or a fertility expert. And there are many things that we can do that have got nothing to do with IVF. And I will always tell a patient who comes to see me, I will do everything to avoid IVF for you. Um, It may be that you do need it, but we need to look into it. So there are many simple things that we can do. And I think sharing your beliefs and your uh, views with your doctor, even if they're a non-Christian doctor, is really valuable because that helps them to work out how you can go ahead in trying to plan a pregnancy. So let's talk a little bit about IVF because that's obviously the most uh, controversial thing. If we take the scientific reductionism way down to its limit... And then we throw in technology so that we understand genes and pathways and things like that. There then is the opportunity to kind of rebuild the body again. And John Wyatt, who produced a fantastic book that I would suggest you look at, called Matters of Life and Death, uses the Lego production analogy. He says, we've broken the body and our understanding of everything down to Lego blocks and we now believe we can a- reassemble it in a different way so that whatever we want, we can reassemble it. And therefore, if we want to get donor eggs from somebody, we can buy that. Uh, f- you know, If, if a 19-year-old gets paid $10,000, it's a win-win situation. Um, if a woman suddenly decides at the age of 60 that she wants a child and she hadn't thought about it before, then that's part of the LEGO rebuilding of the body. We can do that. Um, If we're having miscarriages, then let's go off to India and do a LEGO thing and get an Indian woman to carry our embryo for us. So um, this whole consumer attitude that we've got in getting a mobile phone plan or buying a car, Making sure we get the cheapest groceries at the best price, et cetera, uh, making sure that everything we want we can buy can be carried through to fertility management, and therefore I'm often faced with people who see me as a reproductive waiter. you know they they sit down at the the table, they take out the reproductive menu and say, "I'll have this and this and this, and I'll pay you for it, but I want it now, and I want it done this way and therefore. I think I'm often a product of the consumer society where I'm just told what I've got to do because I'm going to earn money for it and everybody else gives it to me. And by the way, if you don't serve my meal in this reproductive menu, uh, way, uh, restaurant, I'll go down the road to someone else who will give it to me. So it's often difficult for me as a Christian because I'm dealing with people who have a completely different mindset from me. So also in this book, John Wyatt's used the analogy of flawed masterpieces. So he says, we're all like a beautiful painting that was created, but for various reasons, some of the paint has fallen off in various areas. And because of environmental or genetic reasons, the paint falls off faster in some pictures than others. And um, there's nothing wrong in trying to repair that picture. We'll never get it back to perfect. But It's not as if you cut the picture apart and then reassemble it in different pieces. You try and restore the original. You don't try and make a Lego picture. And so I see IVF um, as something that I can do to repair a masterpiece. So if somebody's got blocked tubes, or a guy's got very little sperm, I see nothing wrong in trying to help them repair that. I may never get the tubes back to normal. I may never get the sperm back to normal. But if I can do it in a different way and I can repair the picture, then I think that's really something that I can do. Now, if they want to do something utterly different from what the original masterpiece was about, then I have the right to turn that down as well. Many Christians will say, I'll never have IVF, because that's kind of what's been indoctrinated into them, that uh, IVF is a really bad thing and that we should never do it. And I often start off with Christians like that and say, fine, we won't go near IVF. We'll start off on other things. And as time goes on and we talk through things, they'll start to see that actually IVF is restoring the masterpiece and not building a Lego uh, monster. So there are a couple of things I'd like to talk with you about that often vex us. And the most import- one of the most important ones is when does life begin? Um... It's one I don't think I can answer and it's one that we could debate all night and uh, each of you will have very strong opinions about it. I see there are really only two options. One is that uh, life begins when the sperm and the egg get together and therefore instantly that uh, the sperm is in the egg, life has begun. Um, the other alternative, which is one that I've tended to use, is that it's when the embryo has a relationship with its mother. And that's usually after about eight days when it starts to hatch as an embryo and implant into the mother and sends a signal to the mother saying, I'm here, look after me. Um, I I think many of us have this concept that, and and the Bible does talk about it, about God knowing us in our womb, in, in our mother's womb. And it's almost as if there was an instant of time in which spiritual life is breathed into us but the bible being a pre-christian book doesn't tell us whether that inspiration of spiritual life our soul occurred when the sperm hit the egg or when the embryo hatched inside the uterus or whether the heart developed or the nervous system developed or whatever so i'm not going to be able to give you an answer of when life begins because I don't think the Bible tells us. I don't think science tells us. And um, ultimately we're going to hold a view which we must honour but is likely to be different among different Christians. But it has big implications for the way we respond to reproductive technology. And so if I believe that an embryo that's about to hatch inside its mother at seven or eight days is utterly deserving of protection and should never be aborted, then I have a different view to freezing embryos, for instance, and discarding embryos that are not developing differently. If you have the view that life begins when the sperm and the egg gets together, then probably you'd never agree to freeze an embryo or to throw an embryo away if it's not looking good. So out of that comes um, the whole issue of freezing embryos. So a Roman Catholic priest that I was quite close to told me, Rob, I've got no problem with IVF but it is absolutely evil to take human beings, which are embryos and store them in liquid nitrogen for 10 years and possibly throw them away. So for him, an embryo was a spiritual being who had a relationship with God and if that was put back in the mum's womb, that's fine but you could never freeze it. And... uh, I've had experience recently of two Christian couples from my church. One came to me and said, I will never freeze embryos, uh, but I am happy to have IVF. And we worked out a strategy whereby we put two embryos back into her because she was 40, and all the spare eggs were frozen. And she, uh, she got twins, which was not what we were intending, but everything went well. Um, And she's now got eggs that she's totally happy to throw away. She doesn't see that as life. One of her best friends, who was much younger, came along, and they'd been trying for four or five years. And in the end, after much discussion, we decided to do IVF. And they fertilised all the eggs that they had, and they had six embryos frozen. And we put one embryo back. She had one baby, and she made an appointment to come and see me about a year later to have the next embryo back and when she turned up she was pregnant naturally and she now says i only want two kids i've got six embryos sitting there i do not know what to do i don't know if these are are li- you know these are valuable in god's sight or what to do about them So these are the sort of issues that we struggle with. The average non-Christian has no problem. They'd say, chuck them all out or give them to someone else or make them into stem cells. But the Christian has great trouble. The next issue we have to deal with is donor sperm, um, donor eggs and surrogacy. It's very clear in the Bible that children knew where they came from. We've got all these long, boring lineage charts of where people came from. And that's really important because people were able to know their ancestry. Um, Secrecy is a terribly cruel thing to do to a child, and there are lots and lots of people born from donor sperm around who can never, ever find their genetic father. They love their biological parents, but they can never find their genetic father. And I think, as Christians, if we are to use donated sperm or donated eggs, then our children must know where they came from genetically. That doesn't mean they're going to you know, want to abandon us and go with their genetic father or mother. But we do need to have people, people need to know their lineage. Now, I have a lot of people who need donor eggs and they need donor sperm, and my philosophy is I'll never let you access that unless we know who that person is and that person's prepared to have a relationship with the child. And so people are left with the option of buying donor eggs in America or South Africa or wherever it may be, or bringing in sperm from America, uh, people unknown. I've got a radical option for you. Wouldn't it be great if a church had a list of people who prepared to donate eggs for other Christians? Even, and this will sound gross to you guys, would some of you be prepared to donate sperm for people in the church who've got no sperm? You know, could that be part of our Christian response to infertility that we deal with rather than people being tempted to go off and buy things from anonymous people elsewhere? I can't answer this, and I haven't put it to my church, but I know there are heap of Christians who would love to know that a Christian sister was prepared to donate eggs for them and guys uh, sperm next issue is genetic diagnosis of embryos i talked about the genomic revolution that was on us so i can take one cell off an embryo and i can te- check that embryo for every single chromosome to make sure that they're all there and 600 individual diseases to see whether that's present within two years we're going to be able to do a whole genomic analysis on one cell and work out whether that uh, embryo is at risk of breast cancer, Alzheimer's, uh, cancer of the gut, whatever. Um, and so we're going to have increasing tendency for people to want to check their embryos. It's OK for cystic fibrosis, that let's say there's a family that's had terrible child with, you know, a child terribly affected with cystic fibrosis. They've got a one in four chance of the next child having it maybe we could go through the embryos and work out which ones are at risk and which aren't and put that back. But um, once we start extending it to a lot of other things, it becomes really problematic. Some people will say to me, it's just as bad to discard a five-day embryo that you've said's got cystic fibrosis as it is to abort that child at 18 weeks of age of pregnancy. And I really can't answer that, but I guess my gut instinct saying I think it's better to deal with that embryo earlier rather than later. Obviously, if you would never terminate a child, then you should never check an embryo. Um, I talked about freezing eggs instead of embryos. So for many Christians, freezing embryos is a major issue. But now freezing eggs is getting much better, and I think if any of you have got infertility issues, you should discuss with your specialist, if I have to have IVF, can I freeze my eggs? And the answer is yes, we can do that. Um, Some of you may encounter people in your family who get cancer when they're teenagers. So a young girl who gets non-Hodgkin's lymphoma as a teenager is going to get chemotherapy that's going to destroy every egg that she's got, and she'll be infertile we could put her through an IVF cycle before she has chemotherapy and freeze all her eggs. Um, If she was older and she was in a relationship, we could add sperm and store embryos. So increasingly, we're going to have issues to do with trying to preserve fertility in people who were not thinking of having children. Next area I want to raise your attention to, sorry, it's going on a bit long, um, is reproductive tourism. So we get people here who can't do something in Australia and they rush off overseas and get it done. What's illegal in Australia can be done in Thailand or India. Um, so we're getting more and more commercialization of reproduction. And for many of you who are lawyers or involved in public policy, maybe this is an area you, think ab- you should think about. Do we need a new Christian theology, a new Christian legislation about the way that we fund uh, medical treatment. Um, How am I going on time? Should I be stopping soon? Five minutes? Okay, good. Um, Issues that uh, vex me every day is single people coming to get donor sperm because they are lesbians or because they don't want to be with a male, um, or sometimes, they don't actually want the guy that they're with to be the person that produces the child in that relationship. So we know in the Bible that it was okay if, um, if a brother died, if a person died for their brother to inseminate the wife. And that was considered okay. But I think it's very different doing IVF. Um, and then finally, stem cells. Uh, stem cells are a major issue that all of us struggle with. There are two ways that we can get stem cells. One is by destroying embryos and creating stem cell lines, or the other way is to take adult cells and convert them into stem cells. Now everyone will say they're the same, but it's not true. Embryonic stem cells are by far preferable from a scientific point of view than taking adult stem cells and converting them. That's because nobody has managed to convert adult stem cells and to keep the genetic integrity of those cells. And I won't go into details, but if anyone's interested in science, it's an issue called epigenetics. So embryonic stem cells are still the number one preferred option. Um, We're moving from an era where if you're sick you get drugs to an era to where you're going to get cells. So the next 20 or 30 years, we're going to move away from drugs and we're going to be giving people cell therapies. And much of that cell therapy will be embryonic stem cell-based. It'll be, from embryonic stem cells, we've converted various cell lines. How are you going to respond as a Christian if someone offers you a stem cell therapy that's going to cure you? Will you be like a Jehovah's Witness, refusing to take blood, even though you know you're going to die? I can't give you an answer for that. So there are a couple of things to end off with. First of all, I'd like to talk about Christian caring. I think that we need to care for people who are unable to have children or people who, because they haven't found the right person, are grieving because they can't have children. And I would challenge you as a church to think about how you're going to manage that. We've got lots of kids. I'm sure you've got great creation Sunday school. But I want you to think about the people who don't have children. How are you caring for them? Um, I think the Bible takes a completely different view on how we care for people in pain, to what our modern community does. And that is that I think we need to show much more empathy and care for those for whom nature or our genes or environment has not been able to deliver on their promises. I think for Christian professionals we need to be much more engaged in uh, defining where we can't go any further and there must be lines in the sand where we're not prepared to go. And I've got those in my life and I think there'll be things in your life as well. So reproductive technology is not going to go away. I think up to 10% of our kids are going to be born from reproductive technology over the next couple of years. Um, The Australian population solidly supports IVF. All the surveys have shown more than 85% of the Australian population think IVF should be supported by Medicare. So it's not going to collapse overnight. And... For equity's case, we do want poor people to have access to good technology as well. So in conclusion, I see no biblical reasons not to support IVF in its conventional form for married couples, but there is a pace for us to take a public stance against more extreme measures uh, to stop consumer attitudes totally dominating what we do. And we must also make sure that the state does not fund things that we as Christians abhor. And above all, I appeal for all of you as Christians, whether you've got children or not, to care for those people who are struggling to get pregnant, for those who will never have a child, and for those who feel incredibly guilty about accessing IVF when they think many of us condemn it. Thank you.
0: Thanks, Robert. That was great. Uh, Friends, can I um, just encourage you to just take a moment. Uh, Don't go too far away. Uh, If you need to run to the loo, do that. Um, uh, We're going to have a moment, a time of questions uh, for Robert. Um, I think this is a unique opportunity. We have, you know, as I've banged on about already, a world-leading clinician and researcher and an evangelical Christian, all those things combined here with us tonight. So can I really urge you to use this opportunity to ask Robert your questions Um, be bold Um, I'm sure Robert will be able to veto questions as he goes if he thinks they're outside of his expertise or or spectrum but please just take a moment now um, just stand up turn around uh, do what you need to do maybe in about three or four minutes we'll just reconvene for questions even write a question down that you want to ask Um, so just take a few moments to have a a breather Uh, there's a few questions that have come in you know in the old-fashioned way, pen and paper uh, up the front here. Um, we might start with these, um, see if these address, uh, these questions have come from you, I haven't written them down, these questions have come from you. Uh, we might um, start with these and then we'll move from there. Um, if you can articulate your question clearly, uh, we'll repeat it, so our session tonight is being recorded, um, just so you know, um, if you can ask a question the question will be repeated in some way, shape or form for the recording and then Robert will answer the question.
1: Okay, the, the first question is one that my daughter, who's 30, has asked me. Um, what would you say to a single Christian woman in her 30s who's considering freezing her eggs? Um, now, to freeze your eggs you have to go through a stimulated cycle with, with drugs um, It would not be covered by Medicare, and so I would imagine that would cost you $12,000 to $15,000 to have that done. But you could freeze somewhere between 10 and 20 eggs, and each of those eggs has got a pretty good chance of producing an embryo, and therefore a reasonable chance of producing a baby. And so from a scientific point of view, if you were 30 and you weren't sure that you were going to find the right guy until you were 40, you'd be very wise to freeze eggs. Uh, that's a scientific answer. It's not a Christian answer. There is a test um, which we call the egg timer test that a woman can have in her, blo- her blood test will tell her how many eggs she's got. And there are quite a lot of women that choose to have that and then make decisions on that, often within a marriage. you know, If the result is pretty low, they get on with it. Um, but if they're single, it can cause a lot of distress. So... Um, I think freezing eggs ethically doesn't have great troubles. You're not freezing embryos. But um, is it a good use of resources? Um, is it OK for an infertile couple to adopt unwanted embryos? It doesn't often happen, but people who finished the family, been through an IVF cycle, will have embryos left over. And it is legal and um, occasionally practiced that that couple will donate their embryos to someone else, usually anonymously, but it can be uh, a known donation, and it's often couched in the term, this is an adoption, you're adopting embryos as opposed to adopting a newborn child. So um, I guess the Christian answer is a bit uncertain, but I think from a medical point of view, it's uh, not an unreasonable thing to do. And there are lots and lots of couples who would like to adopt embryos because both wife and husband have got major uh, fertility problems. Um, Could you explain the current Australian laws on surrogacy? What's your wisdom about negotiating surrogacy? That's really complicated because um, as reproductive technology has grown across Australia, there are different laws in different states. So, for instance, until last year, it was illegal to do surrogacy in South Australia. Um, A law has now been passed that you can do surrogacy, but you can't pay any money. You can't buy a a surrogate. Um, And there's a whole lot of legal issues that go with it. But by and large, you could have surrogacy in South Australia with somebody you know, and that child on the birth certificate goes to the genetic parents, not the woman who gave birth. New South Wales has always been a bit out there. It's for a long time, didn't have any reproductive technology laws, but they al- almost every clinic will practice surrogacy. I'm not entirely sure of the situation in Sydney, but there's no doubt you can get surrogacy in New South Wales. Um, however, the whole problem is the rights of the child, and in reproductive technology, we talk about the rights of the child being paramount. And there have been cases of surrogacy in Australia where it's been done without the right laws, where the woman who carried the baby changed her mind when she gave birth and held on to the baby. And legally she was allowed to do that because the birth mother is the real mother according to the law um, where there is no surrogacy laws. And so it's very dangerous, I think, to get involved in surrogacy unless you're absolutely sure the law's negotiated everything. What do you do, for instance, if the surrogate mother uh, gets very high blood pressure and wants to terminate the pregnancy? Or she chooses to do a genetic test and it's an abnormal baby and she wants to terminate and you don't want to terminate. All these things can be covered by law, but it can get really messy. Right, I'm happy to take any other questions at the back. Okay, so I'm going to repeat the question for people who are not in the room. So what uh, happens to people who decide they're not going to have IVF when they first come and gradually change their mind and then go through IVF? What are the reasons for that? Um, I'd say there are a number of things. Um, one is that people often want to just come in to find out what's wrong and get an explanation, and that's totally legitimate. And then they may think if they're offered something relatively simple and non-invasive that that's Okay. And then as they go through treatment and it doesn't work, they start to think, well, was my decision wrong? Maybe should I go a bit further and should I consider IVF? So part of it is getting used to the whole reproductive process uh, of treatment. Um, And so that may be good or that may be bad. The other thing is sometimes when people reveal that they're having troubles getting pregnant and they... Admit that they're having simpler forms of reproductive technology. Uh, people in the community and their Christian friends start saying, "Oh, I went through that," or "I've got a friend who went through that," and they suddenly start to identify that they're not on their own and that other people have been on the journey before them and made a decision which, at the time, uh, they didn't well they didn't regret it, and so people start to reconsider. Um, I don't think I've seen anybody who's suddenly said, I've changed my theology, and I've reviewed everything, and Christian-wise, I think this is right. It's, it's often a slow process of uh, reconsidering where they're at. So, yeah, it's... My, I always draw out a plan with a couple, and I say, look, there's the complicated end, which is IVF, there's the simple end, which is trying to get intercourse right, Um, When we do your tests, we'll probably know where you are, which end of the spectrum, if your husband's only got one sperm, then you don't really have much choice other than IVF if you're going to be treated. But if everything's normal, you could stay at this end. And so people start to see a journey, and there are going to be exits on that journey that everybody's got. There'll be some people who exit very rapidly, um, saying, I'll never do that, and there'll be others who pass several exits and say, I'll still stay on the main road. Okay, there was a question here. okay, okay so the question is um, that we appreciate that everyone's got different views but how have I developed my view? Um, I'm a little nervous that one of these days when I'm in heaven I'm going to Proved completely wrong, but I guess you have to make a decision in my business somewhere where it is. Um, the, I guess I work from a basic biology, and that is that when a sperm and an egg get together, um, for the first three days of life, that uh, developing embryo is utterly dependent on the mother's egg. The sperm actually has absolutely nothing, you know, the sperm develops things, but the whole machinery if you can talk about it, the embryo is run by the egg for three days when you get to three days you start getting a degree of autonomy so that embryo now starts to run itself and the combined DNA starts to make proteins and messages that run that so kind of two, th- two to three days is a, a sign of whether an embryo is going to go on or not go on um, And around about five days, the embryo reaches a stage we call the blastocyst, when it starts hatching. And that's when it potentially can implant in the mother's womb. So between three and five days, that embryo just swims around inside the mum. It doesn't send any messages off to the mum that can be detected. um, And it may never make it. And we suspect that up to 80% of human embryos conceived naturally, never make it there's a lot of evidence that um, you know, each month you don't get pregnant, it's not because the sperm and the egg didn't get together but it's because the embryo developed but didn't go very far and so when you get to five days and you get hatching, the part of the embryo that's going to form the placenta goes into the mother, starts communicating with the mother and producing a hormone which is the pregnancy hormone that tells the ovary, look I'm here look after me and then it produces a hormone called progesterone, which is pro-pregnancy, to keep the whole thing going. And so I guess I've rationalised from a biological point of view that I either have to take the stance that um, you don't add sperm and egg together, or you protect the embryo absolutely after the time that it could implant. So it's a rationalist argument. It's not a theological argument, because I struggle to find out when... In the Bible, um, this bunch of cells is honoured by God as a total human being. And I completely understand people who take the position, the moment the sperm and the egg get together, that is someone designed in God's image. But practically, I guess I've taken a different view. Thank you. Okay, so at what stage of the embryo does it get used for stem cells? By and large, that day five embryo has developed into two parts. There's the part that's going to be the placenta, and there's the part that's going to produce the embryo that goes on to produce what we would consider to be a baby. And so what they do at that stage is they take off the part that's destined to be the baby and take that bunch of cells, and we call it the inner cell mass, and they then make that into stem cells. Now it's remarkably inefficient. You know, y- you have to use many embryos to get stem cell lines. There have been some developments where people have um, actually taken cells off an embryo at day three, four, and five, and been able to make those into stem cells, and been able to put the remainder of the embryo back in and had a baby. So that may be a, a development in the future that you can take some cells off a developing embryo without destroying it and then you've got stem cells that will fit that baby so but by and large embryonic stem cells mean destruction of an embryo at day five Okay, so the question is, with donor eggs, um, are you Lego building rather than restoring a masterpiece? Um, How do I answer that? Um, I guess donor eggs are quite commonly used these days, and um, my the people that I deal with are always people who are known to each other. So a woman who is donating to her sister or a friend who's donating to somebody and the relationships already exist be- between those people um, and I've never seen that go wrong in 25 years or so that's not to say I'm comfortable with the whole process but um, it's not the same as bringing in, like you would in the United States, a, a college student, paying them $10,000, producing eggs that people never know where they, they came from. Um, so I, I'm, I would be totally happy for a Christian community to take the attitude that donor eggs and gametes is bringing a third party into that relationship in a way that was never envisaged in the Bible. But uh, there are some examples in the Bible where you know, for instance, the, the thing that where a, um, a husband dies, that a, a brother can inseminate that woman, even though there's no love between them, um, to keep the lineage going. That may not be donor sperm, but it's it's bringing a third party into a relationship where one person is, is not functional, indeed dead. So, <laughs> yeah, I... I I'm very uncomfortable with the use of donor, eggs, and sperm in reproductive medicine, the way it's being done at the moment. But where people turn up in an existing relationship, where that child's going to know their genetic father or mother, um, I'm not as anxious about it. But as you can see, there are no absolutes in it, and your point of view is very well taken. right, can we get stem cells from placentas? Um, What happens in a day five embryo is you've got a group of cells that have not yet decided which direction they're going to go. And over the next couple of weeks, some are going to become brains and brain cells and some heart cells. And there are signals that occur that direct them. And for those people who think science explains everything, I mean, the wonder of how these cells can end up as perfect human beings. It's absolutely unbelievable. There's so many things that can go wrong that don't go wrong. So a placenta is a group of cells that have already started to go in a certain direction. So they've started to dif- differentiate. They're not as far down the track as, say, being blood cells or nerve cells. And therefore, they can be rerouted. But they're not quite as good as having cells that have never started on the journey. And can be redirected. So, um, there are a bunch of people working on placental cells and trying to make them into stem cells. And equally, there are a lot of people who just take blood cells, peripheral blood cells, and can make those into heart cells or brain cells or whatever. Um, so, it may well be that we're going to ultimately be able to take adult differentiated cells and make them into what we want. But at the moment, everyone's a bit scared about doing that. We're doing the science, but we're not putting those back into people yet. Thank you. so the question was about contraceptive methods. And I'm sorry, I should have covered that a bit more in my talk. Um, because that's much more practical for many of you. Um, So the oral contraceptive pill uh, blocks ovulation. So you do not get an embryo starting. So I think from a a point of view that that's quite acceptable. Uh, Using condoms, obviously sperm and eggs don't get together. Using barrier methods, the same thing. Um, The problems come in a couple of areas. One is the interuterine device. Um, That's commonly, uh, in China for instance, it's the commonest form of contraception. And we still are not entirely sure whether it stops an embryo that is conceived from implanting or whether it actually interferes with sperm getting up to the uterus. And I would say, up until two years ago, we always th- we thought that a contraceptive device, intrauterine contraceptive device, stopped an embryo implanting. But I think the evidence is emerging now that maybe the embryo never actually forms with an intrauterine device. So that may become more acceptable for Christians. And then we've got the morning after pill. So uh, that's freely available at a few have intercourse and the next morning you regret the person that you had it with or the occasion under which it happened, you can take a pill. um, And that seems to affect the lining of the womb to make it hostile to any embryo that might be around. And so I think that that is certainly a form that one might question because an embryo might be there, but you've made everything so hostile that it can't implant. Things like implanon, which is a rod that's put in your arm, is fine. That doesn't stop, um, that doesn't stop uh, an embryo at all because it just stops you from ovulating. So most forms of modern contraception are, I think, not challenging for Christians um, in, a, in a biological and theological concept. To they are in a social context, but I think particularly the morning-after pill is one that Christians should seriously think about not being in a situation of having to use it. Okay, so in IVF, a number of embryos are formed. How do people decide what to freeze? And this really is where I think you can say people play God. Because um, It's like me looking you in the face and saying you look a nice honest person and I trust you and I'll lend you $100 because you promised me you'd give it back tomorrow as opposed to looking at someone else and saying I don't like the look of your face, I'm not going to trust you I'm not going to give you anything. And in many ways modern embryology looks down a microscope at a group of cells and says this fulfills my criteria for niceness and for potential, I'll keep it. And this group of cells look grotty and no hopers, so and I'm going to throw it away. And that really is the current equivalent. Now, statistically, cells that, l- an embryo that is fragmenting and not looking nice has a much less chance of implanting, but it's not a zero chance. It still has a chance. And similarly, a group of cells that look a beautiful embryo don't necessarily have any guarantee of implanting. So it is very difficult for embryologists to decide what to freeze and what not to freeze. If they freeze everything, um, when they defrost them, a lot of them are going to die anyway. Um, and yet they have to make decisions about which ones to keep. I think in the future we're going to be able to measure things that the embryo produces and possibly some of the cells and work out that these embryos have got a chance of living and which they don't. But This is probably more than any other area playing God. It's a person looking down a microscope and saying, I like you or I don't like you. Thank you. The question is, do the the stem cell benefits outweigh the cost? It's really hard to tell, because there's so much that we've done in medicine that we thought was good that turned out to be wrong. Take thalidomide, for instance. You know, Women who had morning sickness and felt absolutely terrible, they took this drug, thalidomide, and felt great. The only problem was their baby suffered, and it took 10 years to discover that. And there are lots of other things we do in medicine that takes a long time to discover that it causes harm. Um, however, the stem cell uh, army is on the march, and I don't think it's going to be stopped. And There's just huge investment in stem cells and although there's very little benefit at the moment, everyone has this faith that it's going to deliver. At the same time, there are a lot of people who are abusing stem cells. So um, I've got a person who works in my institute who works on stroke and he works on stem cells and stroke and he's using animals to check this out. But most of his patients will know about stem cells and stroke and they'll fly off to somewhere in China or Kazakhstan or Switzerland and be infused with stem cells from lambs or something like that. It has no efficacy at all, but because they're stem cells, people believe they're going to work. So I think we should still work on stem cells. I think the benefits are going to outweigh the costs, but we need to regulate them properly. We need proper proof, and we certainly shouldn't allow Uh, charlatans to go out and sell stem cell therapy to people without proof that it actually works. And that proof can only be done by randomised trials and by uh, following up people who've had treatment. The same way that we do drugs. So The way we test drugs should be the way that we test stem cell therapies. So am I speaking about embryonic or adult stem cells? Um, most of the stem cells that are given overseas are animal embryonic cell stem cells, which should have absolutely zero effect because they're going to be rejected anyway. Um, adult stem cells, they often take from someone's uh, blood or from bone marrow, um, and so those are the stem cells they talk about. The other area that may impact on quite a lot of you is that those of you who are pregnant, you'll be offered a service that you baby's cord blood can be stored so when your baby's born the placenta and umbilical cord's got about 20 milliliters of blood in it and there are a lot of stem cells in that blood and for a large amount of money that blood can be stored away and at a later date if your child needs it theoretically converted into stem cells and that's you know every every person who's delivering in new south wales will be given a pamphlet by a commercial company saying, do you want to keep stem cells? Um, I'm not sure it's going to be of any value, but that will probably be your first interaction with stem cells. Okay, so I was perceived to be supporting embryonic stem cells and yet how does that fit in with my view of life? Um, I think I would personally never get involved in embryonic stem cell research, human. Um, and I think, I've, yeah, I've, I've made that decision. I will never do that. And luckily no one in my institute works on them at the moment because they've got this, I think, unfounded belief that they can convert adult cells back to a stem uh, preliminary way of doing it. However, I've ended up on a National Health and Medical Research Council committee which regulates stem cell experiments throughout the whole of Australia. So I see every experiment that goes on with stem cells and the generation of stem cells. And the vast majority of them come from a a well-renowned and reputable group here in Sydney. Um, And so in some ways I'm contaminated in that I'm sitting there Uh, looking at the experiments. However, it's rather like those of you in the law have to deal with the law as it exists. You have to interpret the law as it exists, whether you like it or not. And so my role on that committee is to say, yes, this fulfills the law, or no, it doesn't fulfill the law. It's not to encourage them to keep going. So my personal view is that if I think life should be protected at day five then I certainly shouldn't be involved in embryonic stem cells. But if I or my daughter was offered a stem cell therapy that was going to cure me, um, I'm not sure how I'm going to respond to that. Thank you. Okay, what advice have I got how we should support and look after couples who've got infertility? well first of all infertility is quite a private thing people don't tend to go around and tell everyone that they're infertile but they do tell their friends they do uh, you know there's some people who will share and it's usually the woman that does it the guys are not very good at it Um, and it may be in your home group or it may be your personal friend that shares they've got a problem and I think it's the sort of thing where we need to really be praying with them and we need to be supporting them in some of the decisions that they've got to make. It doesn't mean asking them every month, did you have your period, are you pregnant? Because that's the worst thing to ask people. <coughs> um, you know, People go through enormous grief having periods when they're really trying to get pregnant. But it's just knowing that there's a bunch of people who care and if they do go to seek fertility treatment to support them, and again, I'd advise not asking every single question, like you know, um, how many embryos have you got going back today, and y- you know, phoning them up on the day of their pregnancy test to find out what's going on. It's it's more that ongoing care, knowing that you're supported, that people understand you. Um, and I also feel quite strongly that as a church, you need to have a firm policy on what you say in your marriage preparation courses if you run one. And uh, you may think I'm very harsh, but I do think we need to reconsider how we tell the congregation about people having kids or how we manage Mother's Day and things like that. I think we need to be a bit more sensitive. Um, that may not answer all your questions, but it, it's, it's much more caring for someone that you would do with, say, a chronic illness than you would for someone who's had a traffic accident in hospital and you've got to visit them every day. It's just understanding it's being there. Um, It's giving them a hug when you know they need it. And obviously lots of prayer. Any other questions? when uh, we were having kids we didn't have those options so you kind of just took whatever nature threw at you and you hoped that when that baby was born everything was fine so that's totally changed and for people these days who are having kids the whole game has changed you know, you can be offered a test at 10 or 12 weeks and offered another test at 14 weeks, you have an ultrasound 18 weeks um, my children have taken the attitude that they're not going to have any of the tests at all and they don't even have the ultrasounds done. Um, there was a well-known person in my church who did have the test done, knew that their child had Down syndrome, told everyone in the church what was going to happen and had the child and rejoiced in that child and looked after them. Um, so I guess I can't make a comment that comes out of my own emotion because i never had to face those decisions but it's one of the big decisions that christians have to face when they have kids to what extent are you going to be investigated and what are you going to do if the test doesn't come out right So how, I guess if I get your question right, how reliable is it at 14 weeks versus an ultrasound? So all the tests that are done early in pregnancy on blood or early ultrasound give you a risk until you've got a risk of 1 in 200 or a risk of 1 in 50, and you then have to make a decision on that. But it's, it's just a risk ratio. You can then get a definite result often by putting a needle into the amniotic fluid and getting cells that you grow and you then test. That then gives you an absolute situation. An ultrasound at 18 weeks will largely tell you whether the heart looks okay and the kidneys look all right, whether you've got five fingers on each hand, haven't got a cleft palate, the brain's developed to the full volume that it should do but it's not going to tell you about genetic conditions that can't be picked up that way. So the two tests tell different things, and at the end of the day, you can't test for everything because the majority of conditions are sporadic, they're not predictable, and many of them are not accessible for testing in utero. So you can be told all the tests are fine but still end up with a problem at the end of the day. So the question is that there's a risk with amniocentesis. The risk that's usually quoted is about 1 in a 100. So if you have an amniocentesis on a normal baby, you've got a 1 in a 100 chance of losing that baby. And it it happens. And if you've been waiting 15 years to have a baby, and you lose that one precious baby, it's devastating. So that's a decision that you have to make. and you certainly wouldn't have an amniocentesis in that situation unless the risk was below 1 in 100. You know, If it was 1 in 5, you've got a 20% chance that that baby might be abnormal. You might take a 1 in 100 chance to be sure of that. But if you've got a 1 in 1,000 chance of that baby being abnormal, why would you have an amniocentesis with a 1% chance? So, These are things that sensible doctors should be able to discuss with you. And I think that comes back to, the. for those of you who, I'm not sure how many of you might be medical people here, but it also applies to anyone in any profession, that we've got to move from this paternalistic thing where we just tell people what they've got to do through to the technical relationship where we just offer them all the technical options through to what Wyatt calls an expert-expert relationship. So that professional is an expert in certain areas But you're an expert in your family history, in your relationships, in your uh, spirituality, all that sort of thing. So our dealings with medical people, as I think they should be with legal, is that we're both experts, but we're experts in different areas, and we have to negotiate what's right for, for a person.
0: Thanks, Robert. Let's uh, put our hands together and thank Robert for coming uh, Can I also thank you guys for coming tonight? Uh, it's been great to see a great turnout tonight, which is to what is uh, particularly perhaps an evocative issue, uh, an issue that is close to many of us, and if not yet, it probably will be. Um, so I'm glad you've come tonight to learn about um, the gospel and the reproductive revolution Uh, Just a few ways forward uh, before we move forward to supper uh, at the back tonight. Uh, Please stick around. Three ways uh, you can move. We've heard a lot tonight and there's a lot to keep thinking about. Uh, For me, two things. The One word sticks out to me is care. Uh, Caring for those people who are struggling with infertility and related issues. Uh, As Christians, we're called to love uh, and we ought to love all people and therefore we need to care for people who are struggling with infertility the other thing is the other reason we need to care is because this is an a complicated field and we need to care deeply about how we think about it so can i encourage you to do those two things care for people and care about how you think about this area and thinking in line with the gospel as well Uh, the second way forward to keep thinking about this area is to read uh, can I encourage you, there are three books that I think you perhaps could engage in. One is the book that um, Robert has shared with us tonight, uh, Matters of Life and Death by John Wyatt. Uh, can I encourage you, to grab hold of that. Wyatt is, is a great author, clear thinker. Um, can I encourage you to pick up that book and read that? Uh, flowing on from this book, another great book you could get your hands on is a book called The Joined Up Life or A Joined Up Life uh, by Dr. Andrew Cameron. Uh, he's an ethicist or moral theologian at Moore College and he's written a book, The Joined Up Life, which is all about applying the gospel to all of life um, so we get a joined up life. Um, in that book is a great section on bioethics. Can I encourage you to get your hands on that? He's an excellent thinker, very accessible as well. Uh, the third book is a, book, a new book that's just been released called Fearfully and Wonderfully Made uh, by Dr. Megan Best. Um, she is a... Christian, she is um, a great author and she's written a very accessible book on these particular issues. Can I encourage you to pick up that book? It's really new, it's like hot off the press, Um, fearfully and wonderfully made by Dr. Megan Best. Uh, The other way forward is um, tonight if you are grappling with these issues, uh, Robert will continue to be around tonight for some time uh, over supper, please catch him. Uh, you can talk to myself, uh, Simon, that was my name, if you didn't catch it at the beginning, or Steph Mania as well. She's here, our women's pastor, to help you work through some more of these issues. And I'll throw in a fourth one as well. Come to church. Um, come to church on Saturday or Sunday, any Saturday or Sunday. We don't allow perfect people to come to church. Uh, if you're imperfect, you're more than welcome. Uh, please come to church. Uh, you can check out our website. It's on the page on the back. Guys, uh, thank you so much for coming tonight. Uh, Let's put our hands together again for Robert um, and thank him. And let me close in prayer. I'm going to pray particularly for Robert as well, that he has such a strong Christian conviction that that continues to dominate and drive his work in this particular area and for us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for Jesus. Uh, Father, we thank you that he came into the world to reorder our disordered desires. Uh, Father, we pray that tonight, by your Spirit, you'd empower us to think um, about all of life through the lens of the Gospel, that we have been purchased by you, redeemed by you, brought back to life by you. And help us, therefore, Lord, to honour you with all of our thoughts, all of our actions. And Father, we pray in line of what we've heard tonight. Help us to be people who care about those who struggle with infertility and help us to be people who think. Uh, And Lord, not be so influenced by the world in which we live, but be driven and thinking about the gospel and how it changes our thoughts. Give us the mind of Christ. And we pray for Robert. We thank you, Father, for bringing him here today. We thank you for his willingness and his desire to teach us, to help us think about this issue. We thank you for saving him. We thank you for giving him um, a desire to think clearly about this issue and that we pray with thanks for the gifts you've given him to use uh, the blessing of medical science uh, to help those who are struggling in, in this area of infertility. Father, keep him close to Jesus, keep him convicted of his faith and, Father, we pray that he would be a blessing to many going forward. And so, Father, we give you great thanks for him and each other and this night. And we commit everything to you tonight in Jesus' name.